We live in a time of madness. Some guys in Norway published a book of my jokes, just jokes from my books, and now MIT wants to reprint it as a coffee table book. <laughs> that, so I said, what does it mean, coffee table book? I know, but I wanted them to be precise. And they told me, it means you do nothing and you get royalties, because it would be an expensive coffee table book, of course. I said yes, but to cheat a little bit, I added some new obscene jokes, and they were so worried at MIT that they immediately consulted their lawyers, like, could we be prosecuted for, name it, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, you know, all possible, you know. Because the, like, you will find there that wonderful legal joke, I like it. How can we be sure that, maybe you know it, I'm sorry, that Judas from the Bible did not betray, did not sell Christ to the Romans? Well, whatever you say about Jews, they know the value of what they are selling, no Jew would sell a god for mere 30 silver coins or whatever. No, sorry. I always fall for this cheap stuff, you know. I'm beneath. But I heard a new... Do you, do, you want, do you want me to sit next to you? <laughs> you mean to... Ah, I know what you want. To have some ball squeezer electric so that then you just press the button. <laughs> but there is a nice one that I was told uh, when I was in Moscow recently. It's a primitive one. You don't have to laugh. But what I like is that it's a Stalinist joke where you expect uh, some political stuff and it gets personal in a nice way. Personal <laughs> means sexual. Like uh, there is a boring local communist cell meeting where one guy local guy is having a long report for two, three hours about political situation and he looks around and sees in the middle of his boring speech that one guy there is half asleep, dozing off, and asks him, are you listening? What am I telling? Do you know who is, just a Russian name, who is Popov? The guy said, oh, wait, no, I no idea. Who is Popov? Well, the lecturer tells him, well, if you were to listen to my long report, you would have known who Popov is, no? And then, no, <laughs> then the guy who was awakened asked him back, but do you know who, name another name, who Alexeyev is? And the lecturer says, no idea. And the guy said, well, if you were to give less talks here and stay more at home, you would have known that Alexeyev is a guy who is fucking your wife while you are giving <laughs> boring talks here. Sorry, this is spirit for me. <laughs> now, a little bit more serious, nonetheless. Uh, uh, what Stephen said before, it's unfortunately true. I counted on this, that this is a smaller circle, and I will really try to develop in these three days, today, Monday, Tuesday, a kind of a, with a little bit of repeating my old stuff, but basically nonetheless new stuff, a kind of introductory notes towards the notion of uh, event and so on, why event. What I want to do is precisely to, not to criticize him, but to supplement my and our good friend, Alain Badiou, and I talked with him, and we both came to the idea that, you know, usually people misinterpret his notion of event as some big spectacular thing, you know, I don't know, 
shattering event, somehow opposed to small daily life, while I think that more and more today a true political event would be something that happens at our apparently most common vulgar everyday level. Like it's easy to do big meetings, one million people on a square, and as we learn from Greece, from Egypt, it's much more difficult to change things afterwards when things return to their normal run, to make a difference there. So, okay, let me now first recapitulate very briefly what I already often developed. It, within the sphere of philosophy, there are, I claim, three key philosophers, only three in the entire Western thought. Plato, Descartes, Hegel. Why? A very simple negative proof. And again, Alain Badiou gave me this idea. Did you notice how each of the three occupies a unique position in the sense that no one wants to be a pure uh, Platonist, Cartesian, Hegelian, already for Plato. Michel Foucault mentioned somewhere that the entire history of Western philosophy can be defined as the history of rejections or criticisms of Plato. It begins immediately with Aristotle, you know, a more nominalist view, Stoicism, and so on and so on. Like, it's almost as if Western philosophy is defined by the impossibility of being a Platonist. You have to draw some kind of a distance. The same goes for Descartes. The entire modern philosophy is a history of critical rejections of Descartes, not to mention Hegel, who in this negative way defines the last 200 years. Just to give you a very brief, shortened recapitulation of my idea, for example, Plato. Here I refer to uh, Alain Badiou's seminar on Plato. You can find it online from a couple of years ago, where he goes to uh, six main anti-Platonic positions, even now, okay, now, in the 20th century. First, we have the vitalist anti-Platonism, Nietzsche, Bergson, Deleuze. The idea is that Plato deals with this uh, gray abstract sterility of ideas. What Plato misses is the real of life becoming and so on and so on. This idea of Plato's empty intellectualism, which misses, ignores uh, 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 the vital force of life. Then we have the empiricist analytic critique of Plato. Plato believed in independent existence of ideas, but as Aristotle already knew, ideas don't exist independently of concrete particular things, and so on, and so on. Then we have the Marxist anti-Platonism, Plato's idealism as the first reaction, class reaction to ancient Greek materialism. This unfortunate idea, propagated even unfortunately again by Lenin, that the couple of Plato and Aristotle is the first couple of 
idealism, materialism, like aristocratic, arrogant, ruling class, class Plato versus more liberal, popular, whatever, nominalist, empiricist, Aristotle. I, I think, repeat this every year here, that this is, for me, simply a ridiculous and, uh, to put it in British way, empirically false statement. Just two things that I repeat all the time. A, if you know a little bit about Plato and Aristotle, you must know that whatever we can say against Plato, there is no place for slaves in Plato's Republic. While Aristotle has even a concept, you know, uh, slaves like uh, 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 talking, uh, talking tools, talking instruments, like ontologically even lower level. Uh, and point two, a more beautiful one even, whatever you say against Plato, he explicitly states in his Republic that the subordinate position of women in the existing society is a historical contingency. In his ideal republic, whatever goes for men goes for women and vice versa. Like, it's not part of the concept. On the other hand, Aristotle, as you probably know, provides even the ontological foundation for the male superiority. You know, like, male versus, uh, masculine versus feminine principle is like, Forum, active forum versus passive matter, and so on and so on. Let's go on. Existential anti-Platonism. Plato subordinates singular existence, its uniqueness, to the universal. This point was developed mostly by Kierkegaard, like Socrates versus Christ. Socrates, universal wisdom, Christ, uniqueness of singular existence. Then we have Heideggerian anti-Platonism. You know, Plato as the key, as it were, fall, forgetfulness of forgetting the history of being, metaphysical obliteration of ontological difference, and finally, a democratic anti-Platonism. From Karl Popper to Hannah Arendt, the idea being that Plato in his Republic is the proto-totalitarian thinker. And that there is a straight line, as I think Terry Eagleton once mentioned, from Plato to NATO, like uh, Western metaphysics. Okay, we know this. Then, things get funny, now we'll try to be a little bit shorter. If you move to Descartes, it's almost the same matrix, as it were. We have Heideggerian anti-Cartesianism. You know, in Heidegger's deployment of history of Western metaphysics, Descartes stands for the final moment of metaphysical, how do you call it, nihilism or nihilism? In I'm not so sure, but okay, whatever. Western nihilism, <laughs> subjectivity, subject reducing all reality to... Uh, objects opened up to imperialist domination, technological manipulation, and so on. Then we have ecological Cartesianism, even with Al Gore, who at least, you know, the ex-vice president, who at least had a little bit of feeling for Hegelian temporal paradoxes, because after he lost the Florida election against Bush, for some time I read this, he used to introduce himself as 
I'm the guy who once was the future US president, like this is at least some sense for temporality. So among others, Al Gore claims this, that while in medieval times, humanity was still an integral element of the cosmic organic order. So we cannot simply exploit nature. We, humanity and nature, are part of natural hierarchic order with the Cartesian dualism. It's we humans objectify, exploit nature, and uh, there seems to be an argument for it. Namely, the great problem Descartes has in conceiving, in conceptualizing the status of living beings. Descartes basically has only space for res extensa, the extended material stuff, and res cogitans, the thinking substance. And so, where is life? Which is why many radical Cartesians simply try to prove, in a pretty cruel way, incidentally, that animals don't even have feelings. That, for example, I don't know, to be tastelessly vulgar, if you beat too harshly or squeeze some bones of a dog and dog appears to cry, that this is just like a, a metal scratching, whatever, squeezing, that it's not a proper feeling, it's purely a mechanical reaction. So, okay, then we have this ecological critique of Cartesianism. We have then the, uh, which I think incidentally is not quite uh, justified, it's much more complex. Then we have cognitivist rejection of Descartes. For example, maybe you know the best-selling book, Antonio Damasio, Descartes' Error. The idea is that Descartes draw a strict line of distinction between pure, neutral, abstract thinking and animal feelings, passions, and so on. That he didn't see the unity of the two. Uh, I wouldn't, how should I put it, sell my mother into slavery to defend this thesis, because uh, if you read the late, the third great book by Descartes, uh, Le Passion de l'âme, The Passions of the Soul, you can see it's much more complex. But okay, we have this line. Then we have the feminist claim. Descartes, apparently abstract cogito, cogito, but in reality, this cogito is, in reality, in actuality, the notion of subject by Descartes, although, again, apparently neutral, de facto privileges male features. Then we have the proponents of so-called linguistic term, who claim that, uh, up to Habermas, who claim that the Cartesian subject is monological, that Descartes doesn't see how every cogito ergo sum individual self-experience as thinking, doubting, and thereby existing is already grounded in linguistic intersubjectivity. Then again, the vitalist critique of Descartes, as I already said, mechanical matter and thinking. Where is the space for life? And the third one, Hegel. Here, things reach the extreme. Proponents of philosophy of life, Lebensphilosophy, it all begins already with Schelling, late Schelling and Schopenhauer, claim that in Hegel, although Hegel claims that his dialectics try to, tries to capture the living thought, 
that it's really artificial life, just logical paradoxes and so on, that real life is missing from Hegel's dialectics. Again, existentialist. The same argument as against Plato, that Hegel privileges the universal, reduces the particular just to the form of appearance, a subordinate moment in self-mediation of the universal materialists. Of course, Hegel idealist, Hegel has to be turned around. Historicists who claim historical process is open-ended and Hegel uh, imposes onto history a certain Western Eurocentric teleology. Analytic philosophers and empiricists, they make fun of Hegel, of his speculative madness. Marxists, of course, traditional liberals who claim Hegel's divinization, celebration of state is again a model of, uh, of a totalitarian uh, spirit, laying the foundations for fascism, although this, again, is even empirically a problematic statement, because, you know, I'm not sure if it was Ernst Crick, he was one of those minor, not minor then, but today have forgotten, deservedly have forgotten, Nazi philosophers. The only interesting role of Ernst Krieg is that he was crucial in undermining Heidegger. You know, Heidegger wanted to become the official Nazi philosopher, but for hardline Nazis, he was not uh, racist, biologist enough, he was too intellectual. Okay, one of these guys was Ernst Krieg, and Ernst Krieg made, I think it's him, the famous statement that on, my God, I don't know, was it March, April, okay, the day when Hitler took power, that this is the day that Hegel finally died, and so on. No, it's a famous statement. Uh, although things are here much more interesting, incidentally, it's a good book not because it will have a text by me, although this will not hurt the book, I hope, but my friends Gregory Fried and another guy are now editing something that comes closest to what one can call the smoking gun in the case against Heidegger. It was quite a detective work to discover this. What? Uh, if you look at official plan for Heidegger's Gesamtausgabe, complete works, there is a seminar which is missing. From 33-34, Hegel and the state. And uh, for good reasons it's missing. Heidegger tries to erase the traces because this is where Heidegger goes to the end in his support of Nazism. It's not only and simply this type of general political opportunism, but it's a detailed theoretical elaboration of it. And uh, so quite by chance, a copy of this seminar was found of Heidegger's seminar, because, you know, Heidegger was an obsessional. He prepared detailed notes for his lectures. It was found in Deutsches Literary, in German literary archive, and it will appear now in English, half a year from now. Yes, it's interesting, because there, again, it's no longer just, you know, how people who try to prove Heidegger Nazism, Heidegger's Nazism, uh, refer to some like uh, turns of the phrase which sounds Nazi. No, no, here it's directly talk about how Hegel's legacy, legacy, which was 
threatened by Weimar. Liberalism is now resuscitated by Nazism and so on and so on. But okay, Heidegger is wrong here, whatever. No, so let's go on, sorry. Marxists, traditional liberals, I said, Hegel, religious for religious moralists, especially Catholics, I notice. Hegel is the, 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 the notion of ethical nihilism, like whatever you can do, it can be justified, good can become evil, evil can become good, and so on and so on. More interesting is the case of uh, deconstructionists. For them, although the real deconstructionists, in the good sense, they know that things with Hegel are much more ambiguous. But the B-level, standard deconstructionists, for them it's this big opposition. Hegel, the ultimate metaphysician, everything is sublated, integrated in the system, and then the big point of deconstruction is, no, but there is a remainder, something resists, everything cannot be totalized, and so on and so on. Good for Derrida, this is not Derrida. Read his glass. Glass, his big double book on Genet and on the other side Hegel, where, <coughs> for example, Derrida says that the difference between Hegelian Aufhebung, overcoming sublation, and what he, Derrida, calls difference is almost imperceptible. It's difficult even to distinguish them. So Derrida knew what he was talking about. And then we get the extreme case of Deleuze, who I almost admire him, who claims Hegel is so, such a big, as it were, mistake that he should simply be forgotten, ignored. It's simple error, let's forget Hegel. The irony is what? Tomorrow there will be, in this building, I don't know even where, or will they also be moving us around, uh, a small colloquium that I'm organizing on Hegel, and it will be opened by a guy from Chicago, Andrew Cutrofello, who, among other things, wrote some 15 years ago a wonderful book called The Owl of Minerva, which tries to repeat the movement of Hegel's phenomenology, but in the epoch after Hegel. Like, the beginning is Hegel's death, then then the split of Hegel's pupils into old New Hegelians, and then it's all a kind of a deduction of everything that happened from analytic philosophy to Heidegger Derrida, and in a nice twist of irony, the end, the absolute knowing resuscitated is the less, of course, today's Hegelian. It's very mysterious. So uh, this point that Hegel is, sorry, that Deleuze is Hegelian, unaware of it, but nonetheless, was also developed by Catherine Malabou in a good text, and uh -uh, she will also be here <laughs> on Saturday. On Saturday, I warn you, there will be a true orgy. First, my two good friends, Rebecca Comey from uh, Toronto and Frank Ruda from Berlin, will do an orgy. They will talk for two hours and a half about the status of how do you call that sign, dash, uh, in Hegel? And that's something to go into. You know, because, because the very beginning of Hegel's logic, not introductions, the beginning is 
Sein, reines Sein, das und nicht anderes. Being, pure being, das. Like, why das? What's the status of this being, pure being? Is this a Hegelian repetition? Is this a contradiction at the law? Like, the enigma of the very beginning. And she, that's Frank Ruda, she, that is to say Rebecca Comey, will go to the very end of phenomenology where Hegel quotes uh, Schiller, some stupid song about uh, spirit recognizing itself in, uh, in the explosion of its appearances. And there, uh, there is also a dash But you don't find this dash in Schiller himself. Because, you know, Hegel is a master of, as all philosophers are, of falsifying quotations. Like, whenever Hegel seems to quote someone as a rule, he makes a mistake. But these mistakes are extremely interesting. You can learn a lot of them. I think usually they have a certain truth value. For example, uh, Don't take this personally. It's not against the Greeks. It's more against uh, the Russians. You know, when Hegel talks in his, his uh, lessons on the history of religion about the difference between uh, Eastern Orthodoxy and Western Christianity. Eastern Orthodoxy means Russian Orthodoxy, not Buddhism, this Christian East. He makes a wonderful mistake. And it's just a mistake because elsewhere he, puts, he put it correctly. He knows. He says that the difference in theological terms is that for the orthodox orientation, you know, it's so-called question of the role of the Son, Son Jesus Christ in Holy Ghost, that for orthodoxy, uh, the Holy Ghost originates only from God the Father, while for Western Christianity, it's co-generated by father and son. What does Hegel do? He says, he moves it one step further, but correctly. Hegel says that for orthodoxy, Holy, Holy Ghost originates from father and son, while for Western Christianity, only from the son. And I think Hegel was right. Because in his reading, at least, you know, what dies on the cross is father. There is no father. You have only son, and when the son is obliterated, you have only the Communist Party, the collective, which is called uh, Holy Ghost there, and so on and so on. So, okay, uh, uh, let me now nonetheless return to the main line. I hope I made clear in this brief exposition what's the, as it were, strategic place of these three thinker, thinkers. They are mega thinkers, not No, just because of this negative reason. They determine the entire field that comes after them, but not directly, that they are all Hegelians. They are all anti-Hegelians. Like the entire philosophy of 19th, 20th century is in one or another way anti-Hegelian. It's interesting how even those who are Hegelians have to introduce some minimal distance. Like either... The st like one standard way is to open up a little bit the system, to claim that Hegel was nonetheless wrong, to presuppose absolute knowing, we should be more open to, to the development of history, we cannot ever claim we are there at the end, as if Hegel, my God, is saying that. Uh, or another way is to 
like what Habermas is doing, in claiming that Hegel is still too much oriented on this singularity of spirit, there should be a more open linguistic intersubjective field. This is basically Habermas's end of some of his, maybe not followers, but close to him, thinkers who are close to Hegel, theorists of discourse like Michael Brandom and, uh, sorry, Robert Brandom and other Pittsburgh Hegelians, where the idea is that Hegel's logic should not be read like a general ontology, but simply as a kind of an encyclopedia of all possible discursive strategies. You know, this kind of a, how should I call it, ontological diminishing. Hegel is not a big metaphysician, it's just a kind of a generalized discourse theory. Hegel just deploys all the notions that we can use to categorize reality. So, uh, what I want to say here is that I nonetheless think that this, that there is more to say about this. These three philosophers are first negative point of reference. Like, again, the entire philosophy is, uh, is one or in one or another way a rejection of Platonism, the entire modern philosophy, one or another way rejection of Descartes, the entire post-Hegelian philosophy, as already the name says, rejection of Hegel. But I think we should make here two further moves. One is how systematically, and I'm sad I don't have time to develop it more in detail, how systematically with each of the three philosophers, madness intervenes, the concept of madness. Already, Plato, if you know how, for example, in some of his dialogues, how he describes Socrates being seized by an idea, Already Lacan noted it, how it's really a description of someone in a hysterical seizure, you know, all of a sudden immobilized, like a moment of madness. Then we know all the story of Plato, uh, that uh, the hypothesis of the evil spirit and so on, universalized madness. You probably know the polemics between Foucault and Derrida concerning the state of madness. Not to mention Hegel, who is by common sense philosophers dismissed as the ultimate madman in philosophy. It's incredible how many, it's almost now no longer. Now there is a weird rehabilitation of Hegel even within the Anglo-Saxon tradition. But I'm unfortunately old enough to know that when I was young, it was still that uh, even the, let's call them, tolerant liberal Anglo-Saxons. Uh, they were ready to concede maybe there is something in Kant, maybe here, there, but not Hegel. Hegel is the point of complete madness. Madness in this ridiculous sense, you know, the idiot who doesn't see there is reality out there, who thinks he can read the mind of God, blah, blah, and so on and so on. Now, the third point. <coughs> Uh, most interesting, maybe, at least for me, is that these three philosophers are usually conceived, understood as <clears throat> anti-event philosophers. Like, what can be more anti-evental than the Platonic idea that we have some eternal order of 
well, notions, ideas existing in an immutable way, and that nothing really happens. All that happens is uh, anamnesis, it's remembrance. All the movement of our soul is rediscovering what already is deep within ourselves. Nothing new happens. We just rediscover the truth that is already there. As you maybe know, you of course, of course. The idea is that this is Kierkegaard's idea, that only with Christianity something new happens. Christianity is event. Kierkegaard develops this very nicely. How? The death of Christ is precisely a temporary event which can be even empirically located. And that, uh, I'm, I'm, oh, I'm sorry, it's, uh, do I, is it okay? Do I talk too fast or no? A little bit slow will be good, but. Okay, okay, I can make an honest attempt, whatever will be <laughs> the result of it. <laughs> so again, Plato seems to be the ultimate philosopher of anti-event. Nothing new under the sun. Nothing happens. The eternal order is here. The only movement is a movement of, the Germans say it, Zerfall, disintegration. And the point is how to get back to the original undisturbed state. The same thing, the same may appear for Descartes and even more for Hegel. Hegel nonetheless has a system. Although Hegel may appear to be the philosopher of event, dialectical movement, but as Hegel himself put it, in the course of dialectical movement, things are only becoming what they always already eternally are. So we have a closed circle. Is it like this? Now I want to develop a little bit why I think it's not like this. Of course, if we look at immediately at the content of Plato's thought, of course, there seems to be no event there. But look what actually happens in Plato. And here, again, I follow Alain Badiou's wonderful reading. What's the, as it were, zero level of the Platonic experience? It is that we live our ordinary daily life, immersed in our ordinary interests, fears, whatever, and then we encounter an idea. And this is the platonic event. It's like, you know, Saul's conversion into Saint Paul and so on. Something happens, a radical cut, you discover another dimension. That's the platonic, that's the platonic event. No wonder that Plato was celebrating love Love as madness, and Plato emphasized the uh, love as the beginning of wisdom. Usually, this is only taken as moment of gradual ascension, you know, like first you love a concrete body, then you generalize it to all beautiful bodies, then you drop the body itself to the idea of beauty and so on. But nonetheless, I think that we should never forget 
how it all begins for Plato. Again, you are in your daily universe thinking about these dead pleasures, blah, blah, and suddenly you encounter someone who brutally confronts you as the object of your love, and everything turns around. Your life is forever, your life is forever changed. You can feel in Plato this brutal encounter in all its strength. The encounter which is in a way beyond good and evil. If you are passionately in love, then you know, even your most intimate rational interests, parents, children, colleagues, all can vanish. Your entire life is uh, refocused. You experience a weird indifference towards your moral obligations with regard to the people around you, and so on, and so on. <laughs> so this falling in love is the platonic event. I think that precisely this is what is, at least for me, I know whenever I mention this, it gets me into big trouble. But uh, I think that this dimension, the way I see it, again, is missing in, I hate the term, I'm accused of racism when I use it, oriental thought. What I want to say is this, that and here I'm on the side of Plato, that what for Oriental approach is, as it were, the origin of evil, the fall. Like, no, the Oriental idea is you are in some kind of undisturbed state of bliss, and then you get too engaged, you fall into. But what Plato celebrates is precisely this falling into, as full engagement. So this would be the Plato event. Uh, then, Descartes, don't forget that Descartes' cogito is precisely a pure event. It's not, here Descartes immediately misunderstands himself. Cogito is not a substance which is thinking. This is already Descartes' metaphysics. No, cogito is this experience that uh, of a thing that exists only insofar as it is thinking, only in the course of the process of thinking. And what is crucial here, I think, maybe even absolutely crucial, is not to forget that when he describes this pure experience of cogito, Descartes is not playing some intellectual games. He's describing a very concrete, let's call it mystical spiritual experience. I don't know how deep you are in mysticism, but you know, you have this wonderful notion of the night of the world, when you withdraw in a kind of psychotic reduction. Uh, uh, you withdraw from reality into the abyss of your soul. It's the point of darkness, but darkness is the ultimate depth of your soul. And, I and this, again, what Descartes is describing as 
cogito ergo sum is precisely this thought disconnected from reality, this pure moment of inwardness, which is at the same time the moment of madness. The thesis is, and I don't have time to develop it, I did it in my big fat book, which was mentioned, that uh, Hegel was well aware of how, in order for human spirit, our symbolic universe, to develop, we have to go through this zero point of madness. Hegel is here more Foucauldian than maybe than Michel Foucault himself, in this idea that madness is not just a, 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 a possibility that things goes wrong, but our rational world, as it were, emerges only as a defense against the threat of madness. Hegel says this openly, that even if empirically we are not, most of us, mad, but the only way to understand human reason is as a reaction to madness, maybe even as a form of madness. In what sense? There is a wonderful passage in Freud's reading of uh, of uh, his basic, uh, his uh, big analysis of paranoia, the so-called Judge Schreber case, where Freud says something very important, which is usually misunderstood. Freud says that in a paranoiac system, what we usually take as the sign of madness is, on the contrary, an attempt to get out of madness, namely the paranoiac construct is a kind of a ersatz pseudo-normality. The true madness is the night of the world, the withdrawal from reality, the disintegration of your psychic universe. And again, the paranoiac system is already an attempt, of course, a crazy attempt, but an attempt to cure yourself. Lacan, sometimes, I'm not sure one should do this radical step but nonetheless, Lacan sometimes along these lines proposed that there is a moment of madness in all rationality, in the sense that every rationality is a mad attempt to get out of uh, madness. Uh, so, in now, okay, we got this, the three philosophers, the philosophers of event. Plato, platonic event, you encounter the idea, and as you, I hope you got it, how, that's what I want to deliver to you, how we can formulate the basic platonic experience independently of all this idealist, substantialist metaphysics. There, I'm, I'm not claiming that there are eternal ideas existing independently of us and so on and so on. I'm just saying that in authentic moments of love, political engagement, we encounter some kind of absolute. And again, I don't mean absolute in any bullshitty metaphysical sense or whatever. Just something strikes you and uh, as someone uh, 
also morality there is a nice can work as an absolute in what sense i forgot who in some novel i know in which novel because it's a shitty novel and a shitty movie which should be publicly burned i hate it did you see that bullshit the life of pi yeah and i'm embarrassed because through james shamus i know angli and he now wants to meet me no no i'm not boasting now because i'm afraid to meet him he wants from me some kind of a metaphysical justification how deep the movie is <coughs> fuck him it's bullshit i claim but but in the novel life of pi there is a deep correct formulation where you find the statement that uh, when you must do something when you experience something as ethical pressure you must do it because you cannot not do it and i think this is important with authentic ethics it's not the other way around it's not you cannot not do it because you must do it but you simply experience again that you cannot not do it this is encountering the absolute and you can see how i'm not talking about any metaphysics i even claim that that would be i claim the materialist theory of the absolute absolute is something much more fragile and uh, something that belongs to the order of appearance than ordinary reality absolute is like you have a duty there is no direct power in duty you can say fuck off if you are an unethical person but you know once you are caught in duty you cannot not do it with love it's the same you can ignore love but then you awaken in the middle of the night and so on you know this idea of an entity which is totally powerless fragile but nonetheless you cannot get rid of it the more fragile it is the more its hold on you is absolute so again we have this platonic event we have the cartesian event which is again for the first time the absolute anchor of ontological edifice is purely eventual it's that i think therefore i am which means i am only in so far as i am caught in the process of thinking with all the mystical undertones of this absolute inwardness and then hegel ah now let's go further in what sense is hegel the philosopher of the event in what sense is for hegel truth truth itself eventual now of course what immediately arises in our minds are these textbook stupidities you know like hegel uh, hegel yes dialectical development and so on and so on truth develops no 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 it's not as simple as that it's a much more complex process it concerns the way for hegel appearance misleading false appearance is immanent to truth but how your first association here is wrong mine also which says yeah of course first you cling to some idea it's one sided it's just partially true then the opposite it's partially true and then in the higher synthesis all the us no 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 what does hegel mean here 
the starting point should be precisely the power of appearances. How this is, I think, the ABC of Hegel, that in the conflict between appearance and what you experience as the reality behind appearance, the truth is in appearance. What does this mean? Uh, I wonder, did I already sell here the joke, but it's such a nice one that I will nonetheless repeat it, about Jesus Christ and Tiger Woods. Where did I do it? No, you don't remember it. Last year. Last year. OK. If I were to be politically incorrect, I would have said, fuck you. But OK. <laughs> Who asked you something? OK. Then I will go directly to my newly, OK, I skip this. No, 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 no. I, uh, fuck you. <laughs> if you want it, buy the new book. Okay. Uh, 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 let me begin with the movie, and at least I know that this one I didn't yet use here, because I saw it only recently. We in Ljubljana, even in province, interesting thing, things can happen. We just organized a beautiful conference, and I'm not praising Slovene greatness, mostly there were foreigners who were talking there, about Ernst Lubitsch, the director, you know. I think he's the one to be uh, rediscovered as the great one, maybe at the level of Hitchcock and so on and so on. We have now a volume which will be edited, all my friends, the Slovene gang, Alenka Zubancic, Naden Dolar, our Aaron Schuster, a great young voice of progressive thought, which means a young Lacanian, no? and so on. Uh, so uh, let me begin at the zero level. Uh, all the movies I'm telling you, I'm not making propaganda for DVD industry. Now I'm slowly getting used to it. I'm an idiot, but my 13 years old son is slowly teaching me how to do it. Uh, all this downloading, BitTorrents, and so on. All these movies, you can get them for free. There is already an early Lubitsch, Di Pupe, the doll, which is incredible. Why? Because it turns around. Yeah, it's from 1919. Uh, but you can get it now. Uh, it turns around the standard motif of the of the doll, which is in Hoffman, Eta Hoffman, you know, you think you are seducing, uh, I'm sorry, but I cannot restrain from asking you, whenever I see people, I warn you, it will be an obscenity, whenever I see people interpreting for them, no? I am always looking for that you have some obscene code, you know, you pretend to, then you do this, then you do this. Do you have signs like that? Like, <laughs> I always watch carefully, will I see something dirty there, you know? <laughs> I hope you have them, that you will not, this, that that's your secret, you know? I also hope that you interpret creatively, that when I talk, you tell the guy, now he's bullshitting, forget, or whatever, you know, like creative translating, you know. That's your job, my God, you know. Like, did you see Charlie Chaplin, the great dictator? There you have a mega example when Hinkel, Hitler, the dictator, is dictating to his secretary. And at some point, he talks for five minutes and the secretary just up. 
in dem es ist reacting to our spectators surprise Hitler ist surprised and looks at the paper and said okay okay she got it correctly like he's talking I mean I always believe in this uh, that you translators know more than we know you know what I mean like you cut the bullshit sorry let me go on uh, so Lubitsch the puppet the standard version is the Hoffman version you think it's a real woman but uh, When you embrace her, you discover it's just a mechanical doll. I don't have time to go into it, but already in his early film, Lubitsch, in an ingenious way, turns it around. A certain rich guy, uh, uh, nephew of a prince, has to get married because that's the only way for him to get money from his uncle, the count, or whatever. But he hates women. So some priests convince him to marry a doll, a perfect doll who can act as a woman. But then, on the night before the marriage ceremony, a catastrophe happens. That doll is broken by mistake. So they convince a real girl to play a doll. You know, to move like this, and then, of course, ha, 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 in the middle of the night, they, he discovers that, nonetheless, this is not a doll, and so on. But it's a wonderful reversal. Why? Let me go to a later film by Lubitsch from his early Hollywood. It's with Maurice Chevalier, you know, the French, whom I hate, frankly. You know why? Ah, no, he was this typically corrupted French collaborationist, you know. It makes me very sad. I was in Paris to, a couple of months ago. Do you remember when, uh, when Gérard Depardieu discovered the greatness of Russian and Uzbekistan <laughs> democracy? And, and, uh, and I told Alain Badiou, what's going on? And he told me that we have a totally wrong idea of, you know, associating usually pop figures, singers, actors, with some kind of at least liberal progressive attitude. He told me, no, that in France there is a long tradition of this of amusement, media, personality, corrupted, uh, not on the left. Then I told him, but what about two well-known actresses who are well-known for being at least relative progressive, Emmanuel Béar and Juliette Binoche? And he told me, yes, they are well known because they are the only two, <laughs> more or less, no? And so he told me, it's, uh, no, it's just name them. Most of the big names were, like uh, Edith Piaf. Uh, uh, uh. She was playing, singing for Germans during World War II and so on. Just name them, you know. That there is a long tradition in French, again, mediatic cinema, singing industry, so that Carla Bruni, okay, she's Italian, It shouldn't surprise you whom she married and so on. <laughs> Let's go on. So it's with Maurice Chevalier, an hour with you. Here you have a minimum Lubitsch uh, situation. A couple called in the movie Mitzi and André. They are both married, not to each other, to their own guys. And by mistake, they appear they are, find themselves together sharing a taxi. 
And then the conversation developed where uh, we see them, like uh, one, they try to ignore each other, not being connected. Uh, 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 she's looking through the window, he, Andre, is looking, uh, is reading a newspaper, and then she, Mitzi, says, look, look at us. Uh, he reads a newspaper, she looks through the window, aren't we like an old married couple, and so on. And then they try to, uh, they, they start to play on this, and you can imagine what happens. Love develops out of it, and so on. Uh, why am I mentioning this? Because here we encounter a crucial category. A category of uh, uh, innocent bystander, bystander, where you are in a certain situation. And what matters is not what you sincerely think deep in yourself, but how your situation appears to an innocent observer who doesn't know. And usually, even if this appearance is false, socially it is determining, it's stronger. And uh, uh, this is one of the crucial mechanisms in Lubitsch. In what sense? Of course, there was a whole book written on this, an unknown masterpiece of theory. Marta Wolfenstein and Nathan Leites, I hope I pronounced it correctly, Movies of Psychological Study from 1950, a book which systematically develops what it says, the drama of false appearances. Here, the axis is rather the opposite one, that uh, uh, two people are engaged in some activity which may appear evil, morally unacceptable to an external observer. And the theory of this book is that this was the way Hollywood in the 40s and 50s tried to transgress bypass the Hays Code. For example, homosexuality was prohibited. But they smuggled the topic in so that two guys were just friends, but to some external observer, they appeared as, as if they are gay. Usually, the conclusion is, or the denouement is reactionary here. It's simply that at the end, everything gets clear. It was blah, blah, blah. But what Lubitsch knew is that, nonetheless, there, is, there can be more truth precisely in this superficial appearance, you know, which is the most famous example here. You should see it. Lillian Hellman's play, The Children's Hour, which was first made into a movie, These Three, in 1936, and then in 61, under its proper name, The Children's Hour. It's uh, the model of this drama of false appearances. Two young women run a posh, exclusive private school. There is an evil, young, eight, nine years old girl there who wants to take revenge on them. And that's the interesting point. <coughs> In the first version, 1936, it's of the topic is changed into standard love affair. The girl 
reports to her grandmother, who then calls the police, that he saw one of the women kissing the other woman's fiancé. So it's just love affair. But you know why this happened? Because again, lesbianism was prohibited even as a topic, and it's, you know who Sam Goldwyn was, the greatest producer. You must have heard about so-called Goldwynisms. He developed the art of apparent stupidity, Sam Goldwyn, but which were obviously planned, highly intelligent. He was a genius, I claimed. For example, you must know, he said, the oral agreement isn't worth the paper it is written on, the kind of a Deridian statement. And one of his famous Goldwynisms is, apropos, the idea, the myth is that he wanted to make a movie from this play because Lillian Hellman was working for him. And then uh, one of the guys around him told him, but listen, there is a problem. This story takes place among lesbians. And he said, no problem, we will move it to among Americans, and so on. <laughs> okay, so, but later it was redone, and what's so interesting, by the same director, William Wyler, among lesbians. The story is that the evil, as it is in the original play, the evil girl reports to her grandmother that he saw the two women kissing each other, fondling, and she plays innocence. I don't know what this meant, but I saw them kissing. I saw the hand of one of them reaching for the breast of the other, and so on and so on. And of course, the play is uh, tragic. True, and that's already a more Lubitschian standpoint. Through this external, totally invented accusation, the two women discover that they really were not aware of but are attached. And of course, one of them, uh, one of them, Shirley MacLaine, I think, I'm making a joke, but in the second version, the couple is Audrey Hepburn and Shirley MacLaine. Shirley MacLaine hangs herself and so on. It's the tragic ending. But uh, you see the logic here. How? Precisely a gaze which sees less, a gaze which is limited to what it appears, sees more. Sees what precisely the one who are engaged in it from their inner self-experience, what they don't see. I will not now go too much into it. I just want to say how in a, a, I develop this much more in detail in that triple orgy book, Hegemonies, whatever, Judith Butler, uh, Ernesto Laclau, and me, namely how this works even for theory. For example, how a concept which is clearly a misunderstanding, the result of a foreign limited perspective, can bring out a dimension which hits the truth much more successfully than those who are in it. For example, I developed this example in that early book of mine. I mean, uh, uh, you know the notion of film noir. You know that this is a concept that emerged in, now you are doing your obscenity, sir. <laughs> uh, I'm observing you, I'm observing you. I'm like the evil girl from the movie, I will report you then. <laughs> Sorry, uh, that uh, uh, you know that 
all of a sudden, in 46, because the war was over, six, seven movies were shown at the same time in Paris. And the French critics invented the notion film noir. And a French theorist, Marc Vernet, demonstrated how, as to the level of content, they are totally wrong. All the features that they identified as typical were already there before, whatever you want. But nonetheless, the notion, now comes the beauty, not only survived, but had even a retroactive influence on Hollywood itself. So that you see the paradox. The notion of noir was a French misperception of what goes on in Hollywood. Then Hollywood became influenced by this misperception and based on it made some very good films. Or another example, and my friend Ed Kadava told me, he mentioned this to Derrida and Derrida agreed. You remember, you don't, you are too young. When in the early 80s, I would say, maybe late 70s, Derrida's influence began in the United States. It was a clear, simplified misperception. But in an interesting direction, if you look at Derrida's text till that period, they were abstract philosophical analyses of Husserl and so on, all these political, ethical, religious, more engaged stance was the result of the American misperception. And the beauty, this is not a critique of Derrida, on the contrary. Then Derrida started to imitate his American followers who misread him. And the results were extremely interesting, good, and so on and so on. You see, this is the power of, this is the power of misperception. Here you can get the first glimpse of what Hegel means, or of what Lacan is aiming at when he says, la vérité surgit de la méprise, the truth can arise out of a misrecognition. Uh, let's go on. In, in Lubitsch himself, you have, among others, uh, 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 his classic film. I think it's a little bit overestimated, but nonetheless, the shop around the corner. It takes place in a Budapest store. There are two co-workers who dislike each other, but then they they exchange letters. They don't, each of them doesn't know that the other guy with whom he or she is exchanging letters is the guy there in the store, but just an ideal partner. And of course, they fall in love through letters, although they, as persons, know each other and uh, hate each other. I think that what is wrong in this film is the idea that this can work, in the sense that Let's say there is one of you, I hate you, you hate me, we exchange letters, we fall in love with our fantasy images. I, maybe you know more here, Stephen, I don't think this would have worked. It would be rather a catastrophe to discover, oh my God, but it's you. I don't think the result would have been, now I know you are a good guy, we share the same dreams and so on. Because 
One argument against this film is that it was later remade as one of the absolutely disgusting Hollywood melodramas You've Got Mail, you remember, with Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. It's, just here it's even more believable because it's, uh, it's cyberspace and so on. Uh, I wonder if I maybe I did mention this already here. I'm mentioning this story because, and this is the shock, uh, because do you know that uh, a couple of years ago in Sarajevo, of all the places, just after the war, the same thing happened in real life. It was reported in our, at least in ex-Yugoslavia media. A husband and the wife no longer loved each other, and each of them, it's so ridiculous. Each of them started a virtual love affair exchanging passionate letters. Then with an unknown partner. Then finally they decided to meet. They were themselves. But here the result was much more truthful. No, it wasn't, uh, now we know we love each other. It was nightmare. <laughs> it was over. Okay, so uh, let's go on. So uh, I will maybe cut short this a little bit. Uh, so. Uh, Ah. ah, okay. Now, I already developed in my books, and I will drop it here, the idea of how this immanence of appearance to truth, something starts as appearance, obviously a misleading appearance, but it triggers a process, as it were, making it true. How this holds for the Hegelian dialectical process. This is its minimal formula. The how, again, a misleading appearance triggers the mechanism for it to become true. Uh, what I want to develop now, and it will be a little bit more complex, and I must also acknowledge my depths here. I will refer here to one of my Slovene, Lacanian Stalinist Troika, Alenka Zupancic, who is now deeply in it, uh, how this same paradox of eventual status of a truth, in the sense that the truth emerges out of a series of events, out of a through an eventual process, what begins as a misleading appearance becomes truth. How uh, uh, this holds at the most fundamental level for sexuality. Now, this is now new stuff, a little bit more complex. Uh, uh, why is sexuality structured like that? Let me begin with what usually is taken to be Freud's basic discovery, infantile sexuality. And I hope you noticed how this notion is oppressed today. It is as if this is the price we are paying for our uh, so-called permissivity. I claim this is absolutely crucial. In what sense? In the sense that Everything is permitted today. You can have cats to lick your vagina, dogs, whatever, do whatever you want, but children are innocent. Pedophilia became the ultimate 
Krein. Uh, uh, Gerard Weizmann, French Lacanian, make, made this point nicely in a text published in Umbra, the uh, 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 annual volume edited by John Cobject at, uh, at uh, uh, Umbra, uh, 2007. The quote, a quote from Weizmann, the sole remaining prohibition, the one sacred value in our society that seems to remain is to do with children. It is forbidden to touch a hair on their little blonde heads, as if children had rediscovered that angelic purity on which Freud managed to cast some doubt. And it is undoubtedly the diabolical figure of Freud that we condemn today, seeing him as the one who, by uncovering the relationship of childhood to sexuality, quite simply depraved our virginal childhoods. In an age when sexuality is exhibited on every street corner, the image of the innocent child has strangely returned with a vengeance. Uh, why am I mentioning this? You will say, what has this to do with uh, that idea of uh, innocent observer? Yeah, precisely everything. Children are the innocent observers. We can participate in orgies, whatever. Children must not be aware of it. And I know even some of my friends, I was never doing it, who participated in, how do you call those horrors? Uh, when people meet and have group sex, there is a term. Uh, sorry, swinging, yes. Parents who are swinging, blah, blah, blah. But like one of them told me after telling me all, which I hated even to hear. But then, if you mention one of these to my son, I will kill you, and so on. You know, like, you can do whatever you want on condition that the child doesn't know it. We need an innocent gaze. <coughs> uh, uh, why? Uh, uh, so we should ask if today, again, because also, it's interesting, one of the ways to make an analysis of an epoch, I claim, is to ask who are the typical bad guys. Like, did you know, she, notice how Fred Jensen makes this remark apropos Wire, the series, how today the only universally acceptable bad guys in horror movies are only two or maybe three terrorists, uh, serial killers and pedophiliacs. It's as if all others are relativized. Like in all these new TV series, you can have ordinary murderers who murder for business. You can, all of them can be bad and they are still presented as like this, the last one, how is it called, series? I, I don't have time to see it. Game of Cards or House of Cards with Kevin Spacey. Game of Thrones and House of Cards. Sorry? House of Cards and Game of Thrones, both of them. Okay, whatever, yeah. <laughs> but what I mean is that, you know, anything goes. You can be a murderer, whatever. You can still be the point of identification. Although there is a series with Kevin Bacon, I think, now. Maybe that one is an interesting one. I forgot the title, but isn't there now a new series where one serial killer tries to constitute a... Huh? Yeah. That should be a progressive answer, I claim, of how. 
like serial killers of the world unite, something <laughs> like this. this. Maybe could be something, you know. But okay, so again, why? In, and I agree with John Cobject, who told me that she is bright, that bitch, John Cobject. She told me that, you remember 15 years ago, 20 or there was that hit series which I hated, Home Alone. And she got paranoia that that's already some kind of a this celebration of these children who uh, invincible, they always win and so on. She immediately read that series as a kind of a, you know, a protection of this innocence. All, uh, okay, so now let's go a step further. What is so scandalous about infantile sexuality? It is not simply the fact that even children presumed innocent are already sexualized. One has to be much more precise here. The scandal resides in two features, which are, of course, two sides of the same coin. First, and here I plagiarize shamelessly Alenka Zupancic, who, in a really intelligent way, drew, observed this fact, although already Jean Laplanche noted it. Which fact? That infantile sexu sexuality is something very weird, in the sense that it's neither biologically grounded nor fitting symbolic cultural norms. Biologically, sexuality is made for copulation, no? It's something specifically human, children's sexuality. It's something that intrudes, pervades the field before biologically mature sexuality. The problem here, and this is what Jean Laplanche pointed out nicely, is that it's not that we have first this too early infantile sexuality to fill in the years be before puberty, and then once puberty enters, oh, we can say, fuck off, now I can fuck in a normal psychological way or whatever. No, it ruins the entire field. You cannot, the, the topics, the way infantile sexuality, as it were, approaches sexual topic, remains in power to the end. Or here is this nice quote from Laplanche. Uh, when it comes to sexuality, man is subject to the greatest of paradoxes. What is acquired through the drives, drives which are not biological here, precedes what is innate and instinctual. You see the point, which is such a simple point, and I'm angry at myself that I didn't notice it. Instinctually, at the level of inborn mechanisms, it's genital screwing to make children, which is like biologically grounded. But it's not as one would have expected that you start at the most primitive level with what is biologically grounded, innate, and then if you're a corrupted cultural guy, you perverse it. No, you start with unnatural sexuality. And in such a way, I continue here the quote, that at the time it emerges, instinctual sexuality, which is adaptive, 
to put it simply, instinctual sexuality. You fact to get children is adaptive in the evolutionary sense. I mean, it has an evolutionary function to bring to the world more monsters like ourselves, whatever finds the seat already taken, as it were, by infantile drives, already and always present in the unconscious. So again, this is the first paradox. Why this strange intrusion in children, neither biology, because biologically infantile sexuality, again, is meaningless, non-functional, nor culture, culture in the sense of normativity and so on, but some weird in-between. Why? Ah, the reason, now it's me plagiarizing Alenka Zupanchic, not Laplace. The reason for this strange excess is the link between sexuality and cognition. Against the standard idea of sexuality as some kind of instinctual vital force, which is then repressed or sublimated through the work of culture, since in its raw state it poses a threat to culture, one should assert the link between sexuality and uh, cognition. That's the other aspect which is not so often noted, but which is absolutely crucial for Freud. That uh, children's sexuality is not some Deleuzean polymorphously perverse paradise of, I don't know, this masturbatory pregenital gestures, you squeeze this, that, I will not be concrete, whatever, and you enjoy it. It's deeply cognitive. It's connected with all this, you know, mysterious questioning, where do children come from, how, and so on and so on, which is why it's also deeply embedded in fantasies, because as we know, fantasies are precisely answers to all this. You know, the small child, that's the Freudian myth, but I think it's true here, a small child sees some strange things, as Laplanche would have put it, the enigma of the other's desire, like others want, he feels something obscene in adults. What do they want from me? Obviously, they are not aware what do they want from me. This is for Laplanche, and I think he is right here, the original experience of subjectivity, not what do I want, but what do the others see in me? Is this idea that I have something in me that others see in me, but I don't know what, and I try to answer it through some mythic uh, narrative. So, the, again, the idea is that children's sexuality is grounded in such a cognitive search, but there is always a missing link. You never get the answer. That's why you have fantasies. And to repeat myself, I cannot resist it because all women that I, to whom I tell this story love it, even I love it. I, I myself love some of these myths. Okay, for obvious reason, women, evil, they want to sex all the time, no wonder they like it. Namely, I remember I'm sorry if I repeat myself, but when I was young, basically I already knew how children are made. You make love. But I didn't know the exact mechanism. So I must admit it for some four or five years, like from five till ten, I thought that with a little bit of a sperm, 
you don't directly inseminate the woman. But that it's like a building block, you know. Today we fuck for the hair of our child, tomorrow we do the nails then, and of course, haha, then you have to, you know, like, my darling, what will we be doing today? Shall we do the eyes of our child, the fingers? Fuck them, of course, women like this. You have to work all the time there. I mean, but, no, you see the point. I even, once when I was a child, I really loved this example. I tried to bring the two together, and I think it's a nice story. On the one hand, I knew you have to make love. On the other hand, I didn't know the mechanism of that insemination, all that horror, all those horrors. So I thought, of course, it must have something to do with, how do you call the disgusting birds, stork. Storks, yes. So then I tried to bring the two together, and my idea was that when you fuck, storks are observing you through the window, and if you fuck nicely, as a gratitude, they bring you the child. And even now, I think, maybe it seems to me much more reasonable than this disgusting insemination idea or whatever. But, okay, let's now become a little bit more serious. What I'm saying is that uh, two things. First, it is, now you will say, okay, these are childish fantasies, but then when you reach puberty, you know. Fuck is fuck, forget about all this. No. The point of Freud is fuck is never fuck. You need fantasy to the end. That's what Lacan means by there is no sexual relationship. Of course, rationally, you know, you make children like this, but to maintain the arousal and so on, you need some fantasy access. That, you know the story, I'm repeating it all the time, that's the Freudian point, that the mystery, uh, that... Uh, the, the problem for psychoanalysis is not this vulgar pansexualism. Whatever you are doing, you are thinking about that. No. The, the, the enigma of psychoanalysis is exactly the opposite one. But what are we thinking when we are doing that? The idea is that when you are making love, it cannot be purely tautological. Like, you make love and you think you are making love. There has to be some detail. You imagine, I don't know, how the hair of a woman is curled, somebody observing you, whatever. So, you see my point. In this sense, the structure of infantile sexuality, which is a cognitive missing link, filled in with, if this is too dirty, should I talk faster, so that then you will not be able to translate all to to save your moral upright. <laughs> Sorry. No. Uh, uh, so again, that's the next lesson, that the missing link remains here to the end. We never reach maturity. That's the point about human sexuality. This, this structure of sexuation through cognitive missing link and fantasies, this structure remains this structure uh, remains to the end. But now uh, comes the next... Uh, 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 and uh, Yes, let me give you another example. I know I'm repeating it, but it's again crucial because uh, it's a nice example from cinema. 
I used it years ago. Did you see, I wonder if it still works, does it happen to you that when you have a movie which you remember well as a mythic memory from decades ago, I'm often afraid to see them again because sometimes it works, but quite often when you see it now you are terribly disappointed and you lose one illusion, no? So I'm afraid to see again David Lynch's Blue Velvet. I wonder if it still works. But nonetheless, this is, I think, a nice fantasy structure. You remember that maybe the best known scene there when Kyle MacLachlan, the um, uh, Twin Peaks guy, observes from the closet uh, uh, Isabella Rossellini and Dennis Hopper uh, playing a sadomasochist game, you know, she's breathing through some oxygen mask and shouting whatever. And uh, Michel Fion, the French cinema theorist, who is now half forgotten, I think it's very sad this, I think he's one of the best. He developed, I was so mad at him because it's such an obvious solution and it works. That the only way to read that scene is to read it as a visu visualized uh, uh, audio hallucination. That is to say, why you, you remember how uh, uh, Edward Hopper puts an, a mother <gasps> and kind of oxygen breathing. That you should imagine this as a child listening to the parents copulating and he hears strange sounds. She doesn't know what sex is about, so she tries to imagine. Daddy breathing, what is he doing? Maybe he has an oxygen mask. It's a beautiful reading, I claim. So, okay, we know now this. Now comes the truly revolutionary point where I follow. Ah, now women have to take over. And, yeah, <laughs> truly revolutionary point. Uh, 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 now comes the point that I want to make today. You know the, let's call it the Deleuze, Judith Butler narrative. It's not quite fair. I know they are not the same, but, uh, and it's more defined. But at least what I will tell you now is how it works popularly. We have the official narrative, let's call it like this, which is there is normal sex, heterosexual, straight, whatever, and then uh, we have these childish games which, if they are not refocused on normal straight copulation, they remain a perversion. The only justification for perversions if, is if they are, in a Hegelian sense, aufgehoben, sublated, synthesized, uh, sublated, uh, 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 kept but changed, transfunctionalized, whatever, used as subordinated moments for genital sex. Like, if I like to look at you naked and kiss you, it's bad if this is the ultimate goal. If it's a foreplay to proper penetration, it's okay to be vulgar. This is, I agree, the standard patriarchal normative version, blah, blah. But I claim, the opposite version, the, let's call it Butler, the less version, which is that we have some kind of a polymorphous, perverse paradise of particular practices, the, this paradisic almost plurality, which is then in a violent way 
synthesize or normativize through their subordination to genital patriarchal paradigm is also false. Uh, there is no primordial innocent pre-genital paradise of plurality of perversions which we can enjoy and then bad patriarchal order comes and sub subordinates it. Uh, uh, in other words, uh, it is not enough to reassert infantile sexuality as the plural multitude of polymorphous perverse drives which are then totalized by the Oedipal genital norm. Infantile sexuality is not a truth or base or some kind of original productive site of sexuality which is then oppressed, totalized, regulated by the genital norm. The idea here is that, uh, uh, and here again I admire Lenka Zupancic, she developed this now in an it's still unpublished, wonderful text, that uh, nonetheless, copulation, to be vulgar, fuck, is a central point. But precisely as such, it escapes normativity. This is what Lacan means by um, there is no sexual relationship, that this cognitive question, as it were, is never answered. That, uh, how to put it, uh, we do have this perverse, polymorphous, more masturbatory practices. I kiss you, you squeeze me, whatever, or even more. Ma but uh, all this is already against the background of a certain gap hole. And this hole, cognitive hole, could have, could have been filled in by a full fuck, if you want, full genital sex, but precisely this cannot be done. There is no knowledge here. There is no formula for sex, which is why real sex, in the sense of full sex copulation, has to be forever filled in its space, has to be sustained by perverse, uh, by perverse uh, scenarios. Uh, what do I mean by this? And now, comes the, uh, the nice point that I want to make. I hope this will uh, convince you. Uh, already Lacan says something which is so typical that it was absolutely censored. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I did my best asking around and no one told me of even one example where someone noticed this absolutely crucial statement in Lacan's Seminar 20, uh, Feminine Sexuality Encore, where Lacan says something, again, I hate people when they do this, because I would like to be the one to do this. You know, this simple observation that once you make it, it's so obvious. Namely, Lacan turns around completely the standard idea that Catholic, Christian, especially Catholic church, its sexual teaching privileges genital sexuality, normative sexuality, at the expense of, uh, at the expense of, uh, of oppressed 
perverse, uh, infantile, whatever drives, and so on and so on. As if, you know, all these perverse drives, they are oppressed. The only thing that the church tolerates is uh, genital, straight, heterosexuality, and so on and so on. Uh, it's absolutely not true. The opposite is true. Here is the quote from Lacan, the crucial one, from, uh, yes, uh, Encore. Christ, even when resurrected from the dead, is valued for his body, and his body is the means by which communion in his presence is incorporation, oral drive, with which Christ's wife, the church, as it is called, contents itself very well having nothing to expe expect from copulation. In everything that followed from the effects of Christianity, particularly in art, everything is exhibition of the body evoking jouissance, excessive enjoyment. And you can lend credence to the testimony of someone who has just come back from an orgy of churches in Italy, and so on and so on. So what Lacan, again, is saying here is that if you look at the church imaginary and art, it is full of these oral, anal drives. You can have saints eating shit, fondling each other, burning, whatever, never fucking. Copulation is prohibited in church imaginary. So again, Lacan is very clear here. One should reject the endlessly repeated critical thesis that the Catholic sexual morality implies, imposes normative heterosexuality on the subversive and destabilizing polymorphous sexuality of humans. In contrast to the idea that partial drives are masturbatory, asocial, and so on, while genital sexuality grounds social link, family as an elementary social forum, one should insist that there is nothing necessarily asocial in partial drives. They function as the glue of society, as the very stuff of communion, in contrast to the heterosexual couple. That's the basic thesis of Lacan, that if you look at this institutions which are, for Freud, in his crowd uh, group psychology and analysis of the ego, the model of groups, army, church, they are full of these famous pre-genital, oral, anal drives, mechanisms of incorporation, anal destruction, and so on. What they feel threatened by is precisely a couple, copulation. And Freud says this directly in his uh, group psychology. I quote Freud, directly sexual tendencies are unfavorable to the formation of groups. Two people coming together for the purpose of sexual satisfaction are making a demonstration against the hurt instinct, against the group feeling. The more they are in love, the more completely they are sufficient for each other. In the great artificial groups, there is no room for women as a sexual object and so on and so on. So again, I quote here Alenka Zupancic, who puts this in wonderful terms. So there is something profoundly disruptive at stake in copulation. For the kind of social bond it proposes, copulation, Christianity doesn't need, sorry, for the, the kind of social bond that Christianity proposes, 
it doesn't need copulation, which functions as the superfluous element, something on top of what would be ideally needed. Indeed, natural copulation is utterly bent from the religious imaginary, whereas this imaginary doesn't recede from images of canonized saints eating the excrements shit of another person. If looked at from this perspective, Christianity is indeed all about jouissance of the body, about the body of God as constituting another person's jouissance. Partial drives and the satisfaction they procure are rather abundantly present. And in this sense, one would be justified in claiming that in its libidinal aspect, the Christian religion massively relies on what belongs to the register of infantile sexuality, satisfaction and bonding by way of partial objects with the exclusion of sexual coupling. The pure enjoyment, enjoyment for the sake of enjoyment, is not exactly what is bent here. What is bent or repressed is its link with sexuality, particularly in the form of copulation. And here I go against Foucault, who proposes as a big revolution that we should delink, decouple pleasures from sexuality. Well, then, that's what the church is doing, I mean. So, uh, again, Christianity fully acknowledges the polymorphous perverse satisfactions of drives, but it desexualizes the pleasure they provide. Pleasures as such, again, are not problematic. As you know, Christian literature abound with the descriptions of ecstatic heavenly pleasures provided by meditations, prayers, rituals, and so on, uh, rituals, and so on, and so on. Uh, uh, again, why? Why this oppression of sexuality? Okay, maybe it's time slowly for me to stop. Just to conclude, now I come to the crucial, crucial point. I would say that because uh, what happens in copulation is precisely a certain link, coupling of two dimensions, which make it problematic for this church vision. We have, on the one hand, Sexuality in the sense of partial drives, you cannot find satisfaction, do this, touch the person that way, put a finger up there, squeeze him that way, maybe it will work, blah, blah. This is the technical stuff of how to do it. And then we have the, let's call it intersubjective link. But isn't the tendency today that the two should be kept apart? or subordinated to each other. Either, on the one hand, if you are frigid, impotent, whatever, it's treated as a problem of partial drives. I claim that the ideal today is that, is that, is that a, a drive, is that, sorry, is that sexual topic is reduced to the problem of partial drives, as if it's just some malfunctioning. You cannot get an erection, do this, blah, blah, blah. On the other hand, of course, we hear a lot about uh, 
good human relations, blah, blah, blah. But here again, sexuality is subordinated to, you know, does it contribute to the depth of your relation to the other and so on and so on. But what happens in an intense copulation is that the two dimensions fall together. That's for me, sorry for getting in my old age when you dream about things that you are no longer doing, at least not a lot, is that uh, the mystery of sexuality is that it's at the same time an intense bodily enjoyment and an absolute contact with the other. Not in this metaphysical sense, while I make love to you, it's really that I try to communicate with your soul. No, no, fuck soul, it's brutally concrete. Isn't this the paradox of fanatical love or sex with love that the more you reduce the other to an object, the more you have a spiritual surrender. Which is why I claim when the church, I read somewhere when I was young already, that the church prefers missionary position, claiming that in this way sexuality is not only uh, animal, but you whisper some stupidities to the other's ear and so on. No, this is a way to maintain distance towards the other, I claim. Even a spiritual distance. In other words, what the church wants to protect us is precisely the metaphysical, miraculous, eventual dimension of sexuality. Sexuality as, you know, a traumatic event which, again, cannot be reduced to functional pleasure in copulation and so on and so on. So again, uh, now the last thing, I don't have time to go to the end, but maybe the most uh, uh, important thing. Uh, Well, I mentioned this missing link, no sexual relationship, and so on and so on. The last trap here, and here one has to be up to a point critical even of Lacan himself, is where if you read Lacan really carefully, you must have noticed a certain ambiguity. On the one hand, Lacan massively endorses this standard philosophical topic of the opposition between animals and humans. There is sexual relationship for animals. Animals are purely determined by instinctual knowledge, a call of nature, not in that sense of, but in the sense of you know when to copulate, blah, blah, blah. It's not a problem there. With animals, it functions. With us humans, we need poetry, fantasies, it doesn't function. But does it really function with animals? I think that uh, this idea of opposing nature as a domain of some naive, immediate balance, and then, you know, all this bombastic existentialist topic of man as <coughs> nature seek unto death. With man, nature no longer provides instinctual knowledge, so we need intelligence, poetry to fill in the gap, and so on and so on. I think that uh, here we have to do a step. Maybe I will speak about it later. You find some about it already in my big fat book, Less Than Nothing. Namely, this idea that uh, uh, 
this idea that it's not enough to say man is a denatured animal. Nature in itself is already denatured. It just doesn't know it. What do I mean by it? What is unconscious? Here, Alenka Zbancic uses a wonderful game of words where, you know, the usual expression is, are you aware of something? Are you conscious of something? She introduces the term to be unconscious of something. That un to be unconscious of does not mean you don't know it. That precisely repressed knowledge and so on and so on. That uh, <clears throat> both nature and man don't know how to do it. But nature simply doesn't know that it doesn't know. It's not unconscious of it. But a catastrophe imbalance is already in nature. Okay, uh, Lacan gives also some hints in this direction. For example, if you read carefully in Seminar 11, when he introduces this notion of lamella, the undead object, he locates the gap, the rupture, signaled by the term lamella, this undead object, already at the level of animal sexuality. Lacan is much more radical here. Lacan, I think, oscillates here between, again, this simple, uh, simple celebration of humanity as, uh, at a loss, you know, this standard topic. Man doesn't have instinctual foundation, coordinates of instinctual knowledge, which is why it has to invent things, it's creative, blah, blah, blah. No, there is already a gap in nature itself. And that would be, for me at least, Again, the great task of materialism today. How to denaturalize nature? I think the true battle is there. The true battle is not in naturalizing men. The true battle is in denaturalizing nature. The ultimate, <clears throat> the ultimate idealist resistance is the very naivety of naturalism. Like. <clears throat> We have nature which knows how, and then somehow, I don't know how, things go wrong with humans. What I'm trying to give you, that's what I developed in my book, is, <coughs> sorry, is this wonderful idea that you find in Schelling, in Walter Benjamin, even Heidegger takes it over, <coughs> this idea that there is... Okay, of course, this is mystical topic, but I claim we can get a materialist version of it. That, that, you know, Benjamin says somewhere that human language was created, or humans invented language, to give worth to the pain which is already in nature, and to redeem the pain in nature. It's a wonderful speculation, of course, one shouldn't give it this direct mythic uh, reading, but I, again, if we, of course, drop this mystical topic, and if we simply say some kind of radical discord and so on, which is already in nature, and that with humanity, nature, as it were, becomes unconscious of its own discord. <clears throat> this is, as you maybe know, <clears throat> if you read some of my stuff, the way I also read quantum physics, in the sense that Quantum physics denaturalizes nature. What the image of reality that we get there, it's not culture, but it's also not nature in the 
usual sense that we understand nature and so on and so on. <clears throat> there were, of course, uh, uh, many other things that I <clears throat> wanted to uh, uh, that I wanted to uh, that I wanted to develop here. Uh, uh, what I wanted to develop. Okay, just one more point so that I uh, I still have three minutes. Ah, you will now demand how do you call this when you are paid more the uh, overtime. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you br if we split the profit, then I will sign it for you. The theory. <laughs> That uh, just as a final note, what would be materialist theology? Recently, I was rereading Kierkegaard's uh, concept of anxiety, where he evokes a wonderful, tremendous materialist idea. He, Kierkegaard, evokes this is my guy, Simon Tornasensis, a certain century scholastic who tried to develop a logical proof of God's existence. And then the idea of Tornasensis is that God himself is that while he, it's a very arrogant position, while he, Tornasensis, is writing this, trying to deduce the necessity of existence of God, that God himself is watching him with anxiety, as if if he fails with this proof, God will, like that proverbial cat that falls down, God will discover that he doesn't exist, you know, as if God, oh my God, what will happen to me if they will not succeed in proving that I exist? And then with his incredible political sense, Kierkegaard says this story of this guy who thought that God's existence itself depends on will we philosophers prove his existence. This story has numerous analogies and in our time speculation has assumed such authority that it has practically tried to make God feel uncertain of himself. Like a monarch who is anxiously waiting to learn whether the general assembly would make him an absolute or a limited monarch. And I like this idea that philosopher will decide, are you God truly a master? Are you just a dazed God with limited powers? And so on and so on. And uh, again, I think that crazy as it may sound, each of us as subjects are in this position of God. In the sense that, literally, our existence depends on the other. You know, it's literally when you are, a f you know, it's not, now you will say, but fuck it. No, I exist even if the whole world disappears. Yeah, but you exist then as what? As a stupid human animal. For you to exist at the most radical level as a human being, you depend on the others radically. And... <coughs> Again, in this sense, here I see also, I'm jumping now just to conclude the last minute, the lesson of quantum physics. For example, you know, <clears throat> this idea that at the micro level things can go on that the system doesn't register. You can cheat ontologically. And here I think it's the ultimate materialist answer to that big question, you know, you know, uh, namely, you know Einstein's answer to Niels Bohr, uh, God doesn't cheat. 
God, of course, I am not a believer. We, if by God we simply say the system of rationality, whatever. The answer to Einstein should be, okay, maybe God doesn't cheat, but he can be cheated. In the sense that at the virtual quantum level, things can happen that God doesn't notice. And there you can quickly cheat. And interestingly enough, there are more about this on Monday, there are theologists who draw this wonderful conclusion. That it's not a problem of, 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 uh, of, uh, of uh, is God cheating? No, we can cheat on God. God, precisely as all-powerful, nonetheless, doesn't know everything. Sorry for this confusion on Monday. On Monday, we go on, if you survive the Hegelian bullshit. Unfortunately, with great pleasure, I tell you now, I'm so infinitely sad that there is no time for debate. <laughs> ha, ha, ha. No, you know what I mean. no. Thanks very much. <laughs>